0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective.
1: In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists, we platform discussions between knowledge sharers,
2: creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear political education for the masses, grounded
0: in history, theory, and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your
2: networks. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight Series. I'm your host, Tiago Machado-Costa, and I'm still joined by my very special guests, um, Juju Smith and C Winter-Hun. Last episode, we we ended by discussing the, the crucial role that racialization and racial systems of power play in, in our understandings of desirability and sexual desire. And so if, if you've missed that, we suggest that you go back and give that a listen as well. As we kind of head into our second and final episode, I want to put forward the, the big question, which is, you know, what is sexual racism? How can we define this idea?
0: I mean, we normally understand sexual racism as either excluding people as potential sexual partners based on race or uh, fetishizing them when you do prefer them as racial partner, as, as sexual partners, right? So it, it, it's, it's either the, 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 the entire exclusion of a group or the inclusion of a group based on these racial stereotypes.
2: You know, linking to, to uh, uh, how we started the last episode of challenging the idea that racism is, or challenging our ideas of what racism is, that racism isn't just about the the exclusion, the the kind of the prejudice, the violence, the kind of the, the epitaphs and the, the, the slurs that people may say, but also treating or, or approaching race as a way to mark out difference between people and in this way to mark out a sexual difference between people. Um
0: and I think that's sort of the thing that we have to think about, right? It's um, how do you broaden this, this definition of sexual racism so that it includes all of the nuance, right? Because the easy understanding is that we include them as sexual partners based on fetish or we exclude them as sexual partners. But sexual racism really involves um, a broader thing like constructing certain groups of people As having certain types of sexual behaviors, right? Whether and largely pathological sexual behaviors, as well as constructing people as having different, varying levels of sexual worth and value, which whether you you know actively engage in these understood acts of sexual racism, like excluding partners or including them because they're fetish. you may not be the one doing it, but nonetheless, you are implicated in this larger narrative of constructing certain groups as being a certain way, right? and maintaining this hierarchy and creating that hierarchy
1: yeah, i like um I like a lot of the work on sexual racism that um, also kind of uses I don't know if it's like a Marxist framework or a uh, capital sort of framework, but that that also, you know, sees the sexual uh, arena as a sexual market. I kind of love that metaphor too. And I think applying sexual racism in that sort of way is really helpful and illuminating because, I you know, thinking about some of the work on sexual capital or erotic capital and how everybody has it, you know, as some folks say, but certain bodies are imbued with more capital than others. And then on the sexual market, like Grinder, out um, of Tinder, you know, where p- people are looking for partners and exchanging capital, you know, uh, doing one-offs or using what they have to compensate for things they don't, I think also plays into our discussions about sexual racism and power, and I think make it more visible in some way. Because I'm thinking about, um, you know, if you are someone, again, and this, you know, from last episode um dr Han talking specifically about you know i think location really matters and kind of your experience like if you're around a bunch of black folks in atlanta you might not have these sorts of issues with race um versus when you are very isolated especially as a queer person of color and oftentimes queer spaces that are oftentimes very white spaces then your value kind of can get shaken up in different ways and so if you don't you know if you see that, hey, I'm a chubbier person, or I'm this sort of person, and I can tell in this particular queer space that this doesn't have desirability because they just want white Adonis, the masculine white Adonis, who's young, who's HIV negative, who's all these different factors, then um, you might have folks who again, like either overcompensate in some ways or exchange their erotic capital or the attributes that make them desirable in different ways. So this is this is interesting to think about with some of the stuff you said before, Tiago, because I was thinking about the big black dick, right? And so some research out there, some of the work I've done too, and some of the work that Dr. Han has done has definitely looked at or talked to people of color who are aware of these things aware that there's an imbalance aware that there's a hierarchy and they use things like oh i know this stereotype about me i have this big black dick i'm going to use that and increase my erotic capital Mm -hmm. to in in order to get with more folks increase my pool of potential partners because otherwise it's shrunk and it just gives all the power to white men to choose Mm -hmm. and so i find that so fascinating too is a different way to think about and engage with erotic capital that's not you know that's not just about um discourse per se but also about capital
0: and that's a tricky thing right because we know that that exists where men of color play into those stereotypes um and you know and in doing so they maintain these stereotypes right they they justify them and they prove them um and on a in the level of subgroups i think that's a little bit problematic but what happens if we bring it down to, like, the individual, right? So they are personally increasing their erotic capital. But the problem, of course, is that they increasing the erotic capital along very sort of a white gaze, right? In terms of, they're not changing the dynamics of what counts as erotic capital. What they're doing is they're feeding into this white notions of desirability, right? That you're only desirable if you can offer something to white men. And then, but then it becomes a problem if, if you know one thing I, I noticed you know, working on my last book was men of color were playing into these stereotypes in pursuit of other men of color. Mm-hmm. So does that change the dynamic in some way? Does that become something else, right? And I think that's one of the questions that I'm grappling with now. What does it mean? Is, is there a way to think about that as, as having giving men of color some level of agency? But again, the problem becomes agency within what frame, right? It, it's yet yeah. you have agency, but you have the agency to act more like what they expect you to act like, right? And so this is a very tricky terrain, um, theoretically and intellectually for me, because I'm trying to sort of figure out uh, what is really happening here, right? Is this something that that could be theorized above, above what we sort of think about this now? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer. I I personally think it is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. But can we intellectualize this in some other way, right? That it's not um, solely just seen that way, but it's, um, but that's sort of like like saying, well, can we can we sort of trouble theory
1: to think about, well, <laughs> this
0: is something else,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I I love what you're saying. Yeah.
2: All of these these you know erotic capital sexual capital kind of drawing on on just borgio's like theory of like structuring society in such a way and structuring spaces and cultures in such a way that people that have a lot of the thing that's valuable can can be at the top of some kind of hierarchy in in that cultural space it's also important to think you know what what is the granularity of all of this because i think uh, it's quite easy to, to just go to ideas of, you know, in inverted commas, gay community, gay spaces, but you know, these spaces are not all the same, the, the, the communities are not all the same. There are, yeah you know, if, when you look at a, even just a, a gay village in a particular town, there are, there are different sexual cultures that are happening in different places, you know? Yeah. Um. And so, even just just thinking, what are what are these different forms of erotic capital? What are these different things that people can have that will make them or that will make them conform to ideas of desirability within certain spaces and within certain cultures? And then, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm interested in the geography of all of this as well, in terms of when you map this out and when you look at, for example, a gay village, or when you look at two towns at a nearby. How do all of these different cultures interact you know how does someone that for example lives in uh, uk manchester rather than us manchester but how does someone that live in manchester choose which split spaces they're going to go out that night and how does maybe the the different ideas around desirability and their different forms of erotic capital in that space how does that influence where they go which spaces they like, which ones they don't like, which spaces they feel a kinship to you and which ones they don't. Sometimes we need to complicate our own approach to things in terms of, you know, gay spaces is, we all know that that's far too, far too broad an idea. And so how do we think about the, the, the range and, and the kind of different kinds of gay spaces and how they, they kind of come up, what influences them and how they interact with one another? I always think back to Winter, your uh, your book, uh, Geisha of a Different Kind. And it always, it, it's the one that always lodges in my mind where you're talking about a muscular Asian gay man. And um, he talks about his experiences of, you know, having muscles that he didn't even know existed. And you went to, you know, oh. White space, like a mainstream queer space, he wasn't getting the attention he thought he deserved. And then when he went to the quote unquote rice spaces, the spaces where white men are after Asian men, then that that dynamic was very different. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it that does raise that question that we would. We we're sort of hinting at earlier about how do we resist sexual racism, right? How do we confront sexual racism, and that I think is the difficult part because it's um, in the, in that in my book Asian you know, there are Asian men who are trying to fight against a stereotype, right? Uh, and we see these these things on on gay dating apps for black men specifically writing, "I'm not a top," right? Uh, and it's but it doesn't it doesn't land the way that they are hoping it would land, like they don't get, uh, all of a sudden they're, they're not seen as being like somehow exceptions because they're, they're following the rules, right? So giving yourself a more muscular body isn't gonna all of a sudden make you desirable in these spaces when whiteness is what is ultimately the currency there, right? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> what are the things we can do? And a lot of people, of course, a lot of, so in, in, in sort of out in the world, Um, They have a problem, because the problem that they see is is that men of color are going after white guys, right? So, So they become very unsympathetic to the idea of sexual racism, because they see it as gay men of color complain they can't get white men. And yet those men, by going after exclusively white guys, are reinforcing that same belief that whiteness is somehow more desirable, right? Um, and, and I've met, you know, gay Asian guys who, who, who have blatantly has told me that, I just, that they just don't find Asian men attractive. And then I wonder, okay, well, if you don't find Asian men attractive, what do you see when you look in the mirror, right? Um, and so there's a level of internalized racism, right? There's a level of self-hate. There's, there's all of this stuff playing into this. Um, and so I can understand when men of color who, who date other men of color Are very unsympathetic, right? Because they see these guys as being as guys who are who are just whining about not being able to get a white man, while simultaneously reinforcing that that whiteness is somehow more desirable, right? And that those guys are failing to interrogate their own desires to say why is my desire only directed towards white guys, right? Why do I not find men of color um, desirable? Uh, because it's you know when we sort of say well this is sort of personal preference well again there's, these patterns shouldn't exist right I don't see a whole lot of Asian guys you know saying well I like something different from me that's why I like white guys well okay well, why don't you like black guys then right uh, because uh-huh. it's really about you want something different from you and and women do this I had I had an argument with an Asian woman who only likes white men. And, and she says, well, you know it's because dating Asian guys is like dating my brother and I, I feel like I want something different. And I'm saying that yeah. well, white people are not sitting around saying I, I don't want to date white people because it's like dating my brother right and no one exactly them, right? <laughs> And so this ridiculous racist explanation because she can't sort of come to terms with the fact that she' inter- she's internalized these same messages. At the same time, I can't, and so I, I I, sort of said, well, okay, well, if you want to date someone different from you, why is it only white men? Like, you've never dated a black guy, right? So why is that? Uh, but it's hard to sort of put that mirror on us and say, why, where are my own desires coming from, right? Uh, because if you really interpret it, you have to sort of accept the fact that, that to some extent, you have been brainwashed in this very racist society, right? So it's a hard thing to accept. It's a hard thing to sort of say, my desires are the result of me being brainwashed into thinking that this group of people who I don't belong to is somehow better than the group of people that I do belong to, right? Uh, And that's a really difficult thing to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. So I don't hard for me to blame them for for not wanting to interrogate that, right? Because interrogating these things always comes to sort of personal upheaval to some extent.
1: Yeah, uh, it reminds me of a chapter in your new book about not trusting Team Swirl, <laughs> 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 which is so good and it's so true. And I actually think what you're talking about, Doctor Han, is it's becoming more fascinating to me in the direction of sexual racism studies in the sense that like, I'm getting, like, I feel like a lot of us for a long time mm-hmm. have been talking about, um, you know, and, and I think it's so important that we name, you know, whiteness in these spaces. We, na- uh, we name white supremacy and how it's influencing desire, but I'm also so, I, you know, love people of color, and I want us to also kind of have that exploration for ourselves about what this means, what it's doing to us, how it's, yeah. um, you know, how it's distorting our own self worth, mm-hmm. because you know we're living in a society that's basically telling us we have no no self worth, yeah. and in our own personal relationships where we're supposed to be seen as people as individuals, it's just the same societal pattern happening, and so I, I find that so fascinating, so interesting, and and something that I think. Um, I'm starting to feel almost in some ways like it's super important work about, you know, what, 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 is, what does it look like when I'm talking to other uh, queer men? Because this is a thing in the queer community, too. We know from some from research that's out there that you're seeing higher levels of interracial relationships. There's a whole host of reasons for that. And so I think questioning, you know, you know, why uh, some folks might not want to date People who look like themselves or, or, and things like that, I think is really, really important and so illuminating and demonstrates the impact of sexual racism on folks mentally amongst different things. We were talking about HIV earlier, which it definitely has an impact on that, but also has an impact on mental health. And I
0: think that we need to sort of think about that, right? We need to think about what, what is happening both internally to us as well as sort of a group process of what's happening to us, right? And and what is this actually doing? And I I feel awfully bad all the time when I talk to these Asian guys who are just like, I don't find Asian men attractive. You know, I'm just like, okay, well, let's think about that, right? Um, Because you can't possibly think that you are the one exception. If you look in the mirror and say, well, I don't find Asian guys attractive, but I think I'm attractive. Well, you can't possibly think you are like the single exception, right? You must have a level of, of, of thinking that you are somehow not not of the same value and worth, right? Um, yeah. And, and one more thing I want to point out, though, and this is kind of unrelated, but because earlier we are talking about sort of, you know, one of the, the things that I hear often is, well, race is just like another, anything else in the gay committee, right? So sort of saying, well, there are guys who don't like people who, bigger guys, they don't like guys who are shorter, they don't like guys who are older, whatever the case might be. But all those other alleged preferences, right, are based on individual characteristics. They're not applied uniformly to an entire group of people, right? You don't walk in and sort of say, um, you know, I'm just not going to be attracted to this person without having met that person because I just don't like that group, right? Um, and so this becomes very, very problematic when we when we try to make that argument that that race is just like any other thing that you have a preference for yeah
1: that's such an ahistorical argument it, it pretends that we don't live in a racist sexist homophobic transphobic <laughs> society when we know none of that is is true
2: I, looking at history i can see quite a lot of differences between what we think about tall people versus what we think about certain racial racialized groups you know mm-hmm. um, right right it's, it's not like we can we can you know, whenever you're born, whenever you become aware of, you know, race as a significant category in society, it's not like you can simply choose to discard all the things that came before you. You know, even yeah. and especially when you don't realize those things have a profound impact on the way you think. Um,
1: well, I was thinking too, uh, building off of that, Thiago, and uh, thinking about what um, Dr. Han was saying. It's interesting too because I think sometimes with the folks who are, you know. I, you, who do kind of use this language of they're, they're kind of the exception themselves to the rule, it's often because, you know, sexual racism is embodied. And I think it's very much embodied in a in a particular body. Obviously, we're saying a particular race, but a particular body. And it becomes so much of the archetype that everything else gets based off of. So if you are this person of color who's closer to that archetype you do get to exclude yeah. your other group because you're closer to whiteness than they are and they're not the exception or they're they're you know you get to be this exception so it just again plays into what i think both all of us have been saying at the end of the day it reinforces white supremacy in this particular way over and over even when uh, it just says it's a different shape you know and and then we play into that personally just reinforcing that hierarchy of desire because what with, with some of
2: the work that I've been doing for my PhD, some of the uh, some of the things that I'm interested in is thinking about these ideas of, you know, personal preference as a way to reject uh, sexual racism as being something that's significant, or, or different kinds of ways that people go about justifying or challenging racialized preferences and racialized desires. Um, and one thing that's come across the board you know, with a lot of the, the people that I've interviewed is whenever I show them profiles, kind of grind the profiles. So dating app profiles where people have, you know, on their on, as part of the biography, they have, uh, you know, maybe half of their biography is saying how they don't want to interact with anyone who's racist and fat phobic and, and misogynist and transphobic and all these things. And whenever participants see those profiles, the first thing that they say is this person sounds boring or this person, you know, doesn't understand what Grindr is about. And so even for the people who do agree that sexual racism is bad and that we do need to be fighting an anti-racist project that dismantles all of this, they still say, but actually the the place where I go to get get my hookups isn't the place to be having these conversations. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, I think it harks back to some of the ideas of, you know, what what are these communities and these spaces that are seen as liberatory for queer people? You know, who are they liberating? And what kind of quote-unquote liberation does that look like? If there were actually liber- liberatory spaces, we wouldn't be having these conversations. And so I think it's important for us to I guess, be critical of, of the, the the histories and, and contemporary discourses of, you know, what gay right movements and what certain sexual movements have said about sexual liberation, you know, who were who they trying to liberate and what kind of goal do they have in mind?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thinking about, uh, I mean, that's some of the pushback I definitely have seen from folks of a different generation for sure that you know of course we we have fought so long for sexual liberation to then be told you know hey what we're doing is racist or fatphobic or anything like that that really irks people in the wrong direction and I do think it's like yeah perhaps there's interesting nuances to you know what people are doing you know there are folks who are like hey I have a fantasy and I'm going to engage in it in one way in this space but that doesn't mean I'm not open to dating folks perhaps you know and and sure like maybe that could be uh tossed around but I also think the on the flip side of things you know you're seeing lots of people who are on the receiving end of this sort of discourse and this sort of language and this sort of marginalization, the fat folk, the femme folk, the people of color, the people who embody all three, you know, all of this, uh, who have been resisting for a long time, right? Who have, you know, we had douchebags a grinder for a long time. We have people who call folks out on their profiles. We have people um, who are, you know, who actively, you know, Uh, I, I, you know, I see people of color who will actively only date other people of color because they definitely don't want to engage in any racist uh, activities and stuff like that. So, you know, I I don't know if like maybe resistance is the wrong word. Maybe I don't know. But I do think that you're seeing and we have seen for a long time people who have been like, fuck this, we're not going to let people talk to us or treat us this way. And I think there's something to be said about that um, that is. That is kind of empowering or if you're looking at uh movements especially in in fat movements and bear communities where across the board even in these femme communities and bear communities you're still seeing sexual racism enacted but you're seeing some resistance that i think or you're seeing people call it out and people claim community and, and stuff like that that i think could be an interesting route of exploration and future research more or like ways to think about rethinking about rethinking sex. That's much more inclusive.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, what, what you were saying in terms of the, the people kind of in a way rejecting thinking around sexual racism and around, you know, what might be problematic about desiring someone because of their, the racial description that we put on them? Um, I've I've had to, to deal with that in you know, academic circles. I've done conference presentations where some of the questions afterwards were like, you know, why why are you telling queer people that we need to desire, you know, according to race, or that you know we need to, you know. Not, we can't. Um, sorry, let me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've done, you know, conference presentations where people have essentially, in the questions, just said things like, you know, queer, queer love is about loving who you want, and so why are you mm-hmm. now putting restrictions on that? Or um, kind of making arguments about the, the history of queer movements and about how criticizing people, even though that's not really what we're doing, but criticizing people because of their preferences is, is somehow antithetical to, to kind of queer logics of, of you know, sexual freedom. Um,
0: it's so easy for them to, to, to sort of use that that sort of queer liberation card, right? While <laughs> clearly they're actively engaging in acts of racism that um, and maintain this racial hierarchy, and, but they want to sort of say, well, you know, I, I'm being true to, and these are the, and these are the same men who will, will criticize, you know, other queer men for, for being, you know, having sexuality that goes beyond this heteronormative monogamy, right? talking about, what well, queer liberation allowed us to, be, to do this. Well, queer liberation didn't allow us to be, you know, straight people who just happen to be gay, right? It allowed us to, to think about the world of possibilities. And, and the problem is that when you engage in sexual racism and when you engage in white supremacy, you're feeding into, it's the opposite of, of the logic and the spirit of queer liberation, right? To, to think about us being going above that sort of boundaries of of, of normality right of, of of white supremacy of like heteronormativity and all of these things that um our, our queer forefathers and foremothers uh, fought for right so but it's so easy for them to it's sort of like when when, when racist white people like you know always sort of referred to, to dr martin luther king jr's one single line ever right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because it it fits their logic, right? Whether it's true or not is not important to them. Whether within the context um, they're misusing that quote doesn't matter to them, right? So it doesn't matter to these people when they they sort of um, allude to queer liberation, whether their understanding of queer liberation is correct or not, because they can pick and choose what they want to from it uh, to justify their own sort of behaviors and values and beliefs.
1: And I do want to reiterate uh, something Dr. Han said earlier or in the last episode. Again, it's not really, none of us are sitting there being like, you should just do whoever, you should do everyone. And like we, we get that lots. a lot goes into decision-making about who we want to partner with, who we want to have sex with. And it has so much more to do with it, uh, just like, And there's, I'm going to mess up this line, Dr. Han, but it's in your book and it's about whether or not you're Penis is flaccid or so not? Like what? Whatever's uh, getting us hard or getting us off. What it's really about too is just you know because intimacy is about mental connections. It's about comfort. It's about so much more. And people still dwindle it down to race. And so that's saying so much about what we think about race. And one of the areas that clearly we can we can really get into this where we can really talk about race because everything else gets um boo-hooed and uh, you know turned a different way or whatever but it it's kind of hard to deny the centrality of race in people's mm-hmm. sex and dating lives it's just it's very hard and so the reality is again breaking down why why is this happening what is behind this what's motivating it i think gets us so much more to race and society at large in all these different societies that's uh, really important really illuminating yeah
0: it's interrogating It's not necessarily interrogating just your desire, it's interrogating the hierarchy of desire, right, what that means, and why we have it, why it exists, what it means, and who it benefits, and how how does it benefit certain groups outside of of erotic interactions, right? Um, And this is the important and interesting question about sexual racism. It's really not about, well, well, boo-hoo, you don't find me attractive, or even It's not even about fetish to say you have a fetish. It, it's really, why does this exist at all, right? What purpose does this serve, you know, for the broader society at large, right? And our, our interaction in the in the larger world, not just in this space of, of um, being in a bedroom with someone.
1: Right. And I do think there's work out there, like, uh, again, mentioning Calendar et al's work, uh, in Australia that was making very clear connections about societal beliefs and then sexual racism. We were seeing those direct ties. And then um, m- m- me and my co-authors, when we replicated that study in the U.S., saw similar things. So I think at the end of the day, there is just something to be said about how sexual racism is, in essence, a reflection of societal racism at large. If you
2: see uh, a group of people, if you see uh a person that you associate with, with a certain racialized group, you see that person and you can't imagine yourself being intimate with them, uh, you you know, if you see a whole groups of people that you fully can't imagine, mm-hmm. you know, them as intimate sexual partners, as people who contribute to your enjoyment of the world in a sexual way, um, and you apply that to, you know, everyone of that group, independently of what they look like, who they are as a person. You know that is that is racism. It's just happening in a sexual context. It it really is about challenging the, the the ideas we have about race, and and you know putting yourself in the position of this is this is someone that you can't love. This is someone that you can't feel attracted to because there is a racial difference between you and them, or because mm-hmm. you feel like there is a difference between you.
0: I really like the way that you phrased it, right, to say that that sexual racism, if you're excluding groups of people, what you're ultimately saying is that that I can't love this person, right? This is not possible for me, right? Um, Or I can't love someone who is a member of that group, right? I mean, I have no problem with people sort of saying, you know, I I simply just don't... um, it's not necessarily the idea that I don't, I haven't met people who, who I think are attractive of, of a certain race. It's, it's this beginning logic of, I'm just going to exclude everyone in that group, right? Because this is what you see in, in these dating apps, right? I mean, I've known people who, uh, who have never had sex with, with someone of another race, and yet they don't dismiss that as a possibility. They don't start approaching these things as someone who, you know because let's face it i mean we live in a country where there's vast swaths of the country where there are no people of color and Mm -hmm. so clearly these guys are not like running around you know with men of color either but it's a lot of these men don't approach life with i'm just going to exclude this entire group right Right. and have sort of that mindset because ultimately it is just as you said it is sort of telling the world and telling yourself and telling others that i can't love someone who is a member of this race hmm. um, and that's very that's that's a very profound thought right is what's really happening there
1: wow that is so what do you all think about folks who are like you know instead of using negative language like no uh oh, no blacks no you know things like that i block more uh asians in the great wall of china you know <laughs> like that um that you move to more um like your preferred things i prefer this i prefer that do you feel like those sorts of actions are ways to um, like not uh, ameliorate uh sexual racism but like better it in some ways or what are your thoughts i know that's been proposed in some research
0: that's a difficult one right because ultimately what you're saying is is um it's okay to, to practice sexual racism, but you just have to be nice
1: about it, right? <laughs> so, Smiling racism. Shout out to Bonilla Silva here.
0: <laughs> that, that really was sort of like the whole grinder approach was, you know, let's yeah. not hurt people's feelings. I mean, yeah. have, uh, have, uh, let's interrogate what's going on here. Um, but it's tough. It's tough because we are socialized in a, in a, in a, in a world that is racist. And so we are socialized to view some people as having more worth and more value than other people. Um, and and so it's not surprising, right? Because we're all socialized in, in this way. Um, so this is why I think it makes it so difficult to confront and challenge, because this is very systemic. It's not about individual negative behaviors. It's not about it's not really just about, well, I just don't, like, like rogue individuals doing this, right? It, it's much deeper than that.
2: And even when you look at the positive discrimination, I guess, the, 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 the fetishizing and the exoticizing side of, of sexual racism, you're not really, you know, you're not doing a favor to anyone mm-hmm. by being attracted to them specifically because of what you see them as racially. If anything, you, you're, say, you're making, again, it's, it's more an argument about how you feel about other people. Mm-hmm. It's an argument about saying, I can only uh, feel attracted to someone that meets these ideas that I have about someone that I can be intimate with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's saying, you know, I will be attracted to, you know, Southeast Asian men, regardless oh. of... The, the yeah. individual, I will just be attracted to the to this group of people, um, and you know, you're just you're just changing the grammar of your of your of your way of thinking. You're not really changing the consequence of anything. What you're doing is still the same thing. What you're drawing from is still the same. You're still grabbing a whole group of people who are diverse, and you know heterogeneous among themselves and saying this whole group of people is the same as Mm -hmm. far as me being horny is concerned
0: (laughs) yeah and they're interchangeable right and this is i think why this becomes such a difficult problem to try to address um and there are no easy answers right but then again it's not any different from any other issue of racism where there are no easy answers (laughs) right
1: (laughs) right yeah what we're so Tiago you're kind of you're you're at a different level than us in this path and it's making me very curious about the directions we think sexual racism studies are going like Mm. what are you seeing on the ground and what 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 does everybody think about like the kind of future directions the field can go in yeah
2: I mean I've I've personally been you know like like I said in Earlier, I think what is one of the things that's been really exciting is just the, the different contexts in which people have been engaging with these ideas. Um, and so, thinking about uh, sexual racism in relation to Muslim immigrants, mm-hmm. thinking about sexual racism in relation to, you know, uh, Native America or in relation to your Aboriginal uh, people in terms of different manifestations of racialization and how it's not always necessarily about phenotype um, because I think, especially when you look into kind of s- some of some of the early work into sexual racism, especially in, in the kind of uh, yeah. Sorry. So when you look into some of the early work into sexual racism, I think a lot of the times you do, you do have people just thinking about what is the relationship between phenotype and desirability right it's not it's not necessarily about accounting for who is seen as more desirable or less desirable because we all as sociologists we all know that that you know it's impossible to to establish that uh depending on the, the kind of spaces that you ask depending on the on the communities that you ask you're gonna get a very different picture but I think taking these ideas forward and thinking know how how do different histories of racism and imperialism manifest themselves in sexual ways um and then for me secondly i think one thing that i'm that i've been quite interested in um both in my own work and then also kind of in the work that other people have been doing is the i guess the geographical manifestation of all of this how you can have you know, in, in, in my own work, because I interview people from all over the UK and you sometimes have people saying, you know, the situation was really bad when I was living in this town. And then I'm in this other town and all of a sudden my whole view about the issue changed. Or you do have people saying, you know, this poor white guy has only ever dated white men. Maybe it's because of, of where he lives. And so the way that geography becomes important to the way that people think both about their own experiences and sense of of who's desirable and who's not desirable, but then also how people use geography to justify and rationalize sexual racism and, you know, the the, the good old, uh, you know, contact theory of just like, you know, maybe you don't have any black friends because you've never met black people, even though, you know, um, porn is out there. the internet is available, uh, television exists. You can see people in many other ways other than just in front of your face. And even if you can't see them in front of your face, I don't think there is a geographical argument for saying that people that you've never met or had contact with are not attractive. Yeah, I think for me, the geography of, of, of sexual racism is really interesting in terms of what what is spatial about these, these racialized desires and how navigating space can, almost like a prism, you shift it a tiny bit and the picture that you get is coming from the same place but ever so slightly different.
1: Uh, yeah, your work or the directions you're thinking about going really remind me of Andrew uh, Shield's work on mm. Immigrants on Grinder. So yeah, <clears throat> thinking about location and space I think is really, really brilliant in, in terms of where the field can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I think sexual racism plays out differently in different parts and different locations. Right. But again, you pose that question of, well, when we have these apps, what is how does that change it as well? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the things I've noticed um, was in Vermont, um, sexual racism is much less of an issue here. I don't see... Um, and not to say that there aren't white guys here who are just simply not going to consider men of color, but I, I don't see that as being routine and patterned in the same way that I saw it in Philadelphia, per se, right? And even on the West Coast, right? Uh, but but that, what that makes me think about is, um, so I remember a long time ago, uh, I used to tell this joke about like, as long as you're not the, the fourth person of color they saw that day, there's, no, there's nothing against you. <laughs> you know? and there's a certain level where there are, quote, too many people of color, and then we start to see this racism come out, right? If you're like the, 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 the one person, um, then then you're not seen as being sort of troubling the, the, the status quo of white supremacy in a way. Wow. So I think being in Vermont, where there are no Asian people... Um, you're not seen as being. Uh, I've I, I've talked to so many guys and white guys in Vermont who, who, of course, they make no. Um, it's a different kind of a racism in the sense that they they don't have a fetishized preference for Asian guys, but these white guys are are sort of like I've always wanted to have sex with an Asian guy, right? It, it, so it's it's so it's an entirely different kind of a racialization, right? That you're you're now there for for some sort of a, Needs fulfillment rather than, um, but it's different from the fetish of of the people where there are a lot of Asian guys where these white guys are looking for someone they believe is going to be more submissive, more quiet, more, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. These guys really are just sort of this curiosity of, gosh, what would it be like to have sex with an Asian guy, right? Um, And I I assume that black guys in Vermont probably get the same thing, where it's just like, okay, I've never had sex with a black guy, I'm just not curious, right? It's a bizarre, it's an entirely different kind of a racism that I can't put my finger on.
2: And then even when you talk to people about, you know, especially I think when you talk to gay men about their their thinking around travel and kind of like tourism, you ask people and they'll just be like, yeah, so I've slept with someone from here, from here, from here, from here. Yeah. You, go, you know, I. this is how I, I started telling my story on these episodes, but like, you know, I arrived to the UK and immediately I opened Grindr. Uh, and part of that is, I guess, feeling like there is a sense of this quote-unquote queer community, there is a bit of it everywhere, but also there are There are people who make a point to sleep with as different people as they can for the sake Mm -hmm. of having different people. Um, uh, Even, you know, some of my participants when ask them, you know, I ask a very basic question of, you know, what spaces are relevant for you when you think of your sexuality? And people immediately start saying, like, oh, you know. I travel to this place for work and I travel to this place for holiday and then I immediately sleep with, with these people and I always sleep with someone when I go to this town and yeah, just the, the intermingling of this like novelty, like sleeping with racialized novelty.
0: And it's very interesting in the sense that they, they will do that only on vacation, right? So um, there was an article in The Advocate that I talked about it in my Engage of a Different Kind where the writer talks about having sex with this uh, Chinese drag queen in Beijing and he, he frames it as his foreign delight, right? I'm like, but the guy lives in Boston. You see Chinese people all the time, right? So why is it okay for you to do, why is this a foreign delight in Beijing? but not yeah. in Boston, right? So, so what is it about you traveling thousands of miles away for you to have this sort of foreign experience, right? You're framing sex with an Asian man as this very foreign thing that you can get in your own backyard.
2: Yeah, point. you know, so, since when have racialized bodies become uh, local delicacies, you know?
1: Dr. Han, you've been doing this the longest. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do you think uh, sexual racism studies can go?
0: You know, I think that that we need to think, um, how do we expand what's happening to the larger narrative about race? Like, where is our place there, right? Um, And discussions about race and racism particularly. So how do we expand it so that people are not, people don't see this as simply like an issue of a niche queer men's topic. Mm -hmm. But that it's something that, that, contributes to this larger narrative about, and dialogue about race. So how do we do that, right? And that's sort of always a challenge in a field that's always going to see any topic about queer people as being niche topics.
1: It's interesting. I feel like we're slowly kind of starting to see that. I'm thinking of April Williams' work, (laughs) uh, looking at uh, fat black women and their experiences with sexual racism or Chantelle yeah. Briggs, uh, Bugs Work, or I'm oh Angela Jones, who just did work applying mm-hmm. sexual racism to um, sex workers online, which I think is so brilliant. Like it's so it it's obviously fertile ground yeah. of different directions people can take this, and you can see you see it expanding in heterosexual spaces, which. Mm-hmm. Watch, watch this space, y'all. The heteros are gonna take it, and all of a sudden, sexual racism is gonna be serious, and we're gonna be kicked out of this field again. But no, I feel like it's like, especially with you know, online sex work, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, and it's kind of the direction I wanna go now with sexual racism, but thinking, because you, know, you had the whole pandemic and people being online, you saw the explosion of OnlyFans, and I thought what Angela Jones was doing is so brilliant. And the way, again, to think about how sexual racism, one, spreads globally, how it becomes a global phenomenon because you're seeing the same sorts of images Mm -hmm. perpetuated in online spaces, mobile apps all across uh, the globe. And then, two, how, you know, people of color, who are sex workers in these spaces might take up space and resist. I think is really fascinating. But then how it also impacts the erotic capital, but their actual capital, like yeah. their uh, money in these spaces. I think is such a fascinating way to think about labor and entrepreneurship and resistance power. Uh, very fertile ground to go in.
2: And I think especially that globalization of sexual racism. You mentioned, you know. I- I grew up a uh, queer little kid in a country where, you know, democracy at the time that I was born, democracy was about well, uh, less than 20 years old, you know, um, and it was a very conservative dem- country as well, uh, very religious. And so queer images didn't exist anywhere. There was no sense of being Portuguese and queer. And so I learned how to be queer from the internet. Mm-hmm. And we all know that the internet is uh, very Americanized, mm-hmm. um, especially queer media. Uh, I think both people, I in the UK of kind of my references, you know, uh, you get things like, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, you would get shows like Will and Grace, or you'd get Queer as Folk, or you'd get, you know, later on, you'd start getting things like Drag Race. Um, that influences your idea of what it is to be queer. And then when you start looking into the the messaging as well, the kind of racialized messaging around sexuality, you do get things like, um, for example, in in the UK, one thing that you see a lot in queer spaces is that the the racial grammar, like the ways of talking about racialized groups is different when you're talking in sexual terms rather than non-sexual terms. And so what, you know, in the UK, when you would say Asian, a lot of the times you would be referring to South Asian, Mm -hmm. but on the grind that people will say no Asians referring to almost an Americanized wording of Asian where, where they actually just mean East and Southeast Asian. The absorption of uh, racialized grammars that aren't necessarily specific to the culture where you, you otherwise live your life. That I think is really interesting and something that, uh, Hopefully, people will engage with in the future. Oh yeah. Jesus, where where can people find you? Uh, what what are some of the stuff that you've been working on?
1: Yeah. So uh, um, I am right now really thinking about uh, expanding Dr. Hans' work <laughs> and applying it to bodies. So I'm looking at I'm looking at that popular f- uh, phrase: no fats, no femmes, uh, no blacks or Asians, and I'm really exploring it. Just kind of it's construction and what that says about the hierarchy of desire. And so uh, I have a contract with NYU Press and I'm working on that book. So hopefully in a few years, you know, a couple of years, you'll get to see that. Otherwise you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all those spaces. And I, I, I give little updates here and there on some work I'm doing.
0: Uh, people could just find me on Facebook. I have Twitter, <laughs> but I, I'm never active on there at all. Um, and they can send me emails by looking me up in my departmental website. Uh, and I'm always open to people contacting me and talking to me. Um, it's pretty exciting when people are interested in your work, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Han has a new book out that people should purchase. Yeah. Racial Erotics. That's really good. So if you're lucky, all you sociolog- sociologists listening, I'm am I'm gonna be his PR man real quick. If you're <laughs> looking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a book you should purchase, definitely for your classroom, It's going to be really great, and uh, he's a great scholar to have on your campus.
0: Ah, thank you.
2: You can find me on Twitter at um, Tiago Mac Costa. Hopefully, eventually, if I if Academia lets me stick around, uh, I might be able to publish some of the things that I've been doing, but. Uh... <laughs> Thank you so much to the folks at uh, Surviving Society for uh, inviting us and letting us have this space Um, and I hope these these conversations have been useful and, and can keep going kind of locally and globally.
1: Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support
2: our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.